Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and I use she or they pronouns. And this episode, I'm excited. I, I put a call out basically being like, who should I talk to about reforestation and how we can confront climate change through reforestation and you know how microclimates affect things, et cetera. And I am very excited to uh, talk to my guest for this week, Simon, about reforestation. But first, Live Like the World is Dying is a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts. I tried to go into, you, know, you all heard it, but I tried to go into the radio producer voice, but I gave up. We're a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts, and here is a jingle from another show on the network. Da-da-da-da. Where did you get this? Your friendly neighborhood anarchist. More of an anarchist militant. People involved in social struggles than everybody else. People have been waiting for some content. Radio show. The final straw, and I'm really good enough. Members of goodness. The final straw radio. Got no blogs. Got org. If you're listening, you are the resistance. Okay, if you could introduce yourself with. I guess your, your name, your pronouns, and some of what you do for work professionally and that has led you to end up on this podcast talking about this issue. Hi, Margaret. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Simon Apostle, um, and I've been uh, a restoration ecologist working primarily in Oregon and Washington for the past decade or so. Um, and a lot of my work has focused on reforestation projects, I guess would be an, an easy way to describe them to lay people, but really I'm, I'm a general, general practice restoration ecologist. And that means, um, applying science to the, uh, the field of, of restoring ecosystems. Okay. So that brings up the, the broad and probably easy to answer question of how do we fix the ecosystem? It seems kind of broken right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously the biggest question that is you know uh, people are, are never able to answer in my field. I, I think the first thing you need to know is what's what's wrong, um, which is a question that uh, is answerable through a combination of research and also just um, feeling out your values. You know how do what do we want from our ecosystems globally and locally? Um, and in the early kind of the early times of ecological restoration as a field, and it's a fairly new field. Um, you know, the idea was, okay, we're, we're going to find historical reference conditions. We're going to figure out, you know, this is what ecosystems used to be and, and used to be usually meant. Um, what were they like before white settlers? I'm speaking in a North American context here, um, which of course, you know, plays into a lot of racist notions about uh, noble savage, you know, did how native peoples here really didn't affect the ecosystem that was in a natural state. Um, and as the field has developed, especially in recent years, people have become much more cognizant of what people have been living in and interacting with and, and manipulating the ecosystems around us for millennia. Um, but then that question becomes much more complicated. You know, our relationship with the natural world is different than it used to be and different than, uh, people and cultures historically have, have related to the ecosystem. So um, it, it becomes a very difficult question to answer. So you, you need to start to fall back on some, uh, some priorities, you know, or, uh, and those priorities can be something like, well, we value biodiversity. You know, we can look and see that this, this ecosystem here is degraded. It's full of introduced weeds. Uh, there's only three species really dominant. And, and we know at minimum, whatever things were like, uh, in the past that, that there was a lot more going on here. So that, that's a really good starting point. So you have a value of biodiversity. The, the moving away from like reference systems is, is really interesting to me. So the idea is that like, basically people are moving away from the idea of well, we're going to make it exactly like it used to be in this like quote unquote untouched natural state, which of course doesn't really exist because humans have been interacting with nature for a long time, but instead picking what values matter to us and then applying them? Is that? Yeah, I think that's true. And one of those values is historical conditions. And that's kind of the core value of the field, 
but it's it's the introduction of these other values that um, have made things much more complicated and I think much more interesting, but also much more true to how we interact with the natural world. Um, so, so certainly a value is we, we know, we basically know that we've messed up. We know that we've come in and through agriculture and through building cities and roads and all of the things that modern society does, we've, we've impacted the natural world in negative ways. We see declines of species. We see loss of biodiversity. We see introduction of, um, of invasive species from other areas. And so we know that these things are problems. Mm -hmm. Um, but what I think my field is starting to, uh, wrestle with a little bit more is, okay, well, well, what is, what is really the solution? We can't, we can't, you know, find a time capsule and and go backwards. Um, and even if we did, you know, we don't know how people were managing those systems before we, and by say we, I'm, I'm talking about white people, which again, you know, there's, lots of native peoples that are involved in ecological restoration and that's becoming more of a focus as well. Um, but, uh, it's, it's introducing those, those more complex values. And and then of course you introduce global warming, um, which is, um, kind of makes it clear that you can't just go backwards. Yeah. You know, we, we don't know what the effects of climate change are going to be in every system or or in any system. And so, that throws a, a wrench into the whole idea of okay, we can just we can just return. I, I like that. I like. I mean, I don't like that everything's going horribly, but I, I like this idea of acknowledging that we can't go backwards. And you know, one of the things that always, when I was a, a younger environmentalist and I was more involved with green anarchism, one of the things that wasn't always the problem, but could sometimes kind of come up as a problem, is this idea of like pretending like we're all going to go back to the quote unquote natural way of living and like living off of the land in, in very specific ways. And it, it never made any sense to me because it always seemed to me that people, even people who are like foraging and things like that, I always thought of, you know, I mean, if you live in a city, dumpster diving is foraging, you know, like not just picking berries or whatever. And not to be dismissive of, of foraging and, and wild environments, but it always seemed like this um, romanticization of the past of, of like a, a trying to recreate the past rather than taking the ideas. It was like people, the thing that we're excited about is like people working with what's around them and what's around us is different than what was around people before industrialization and things like that. Um, so it's just, it's kind of interesting to me to see a, a parallel with that in uh, something like uh, ecological restoration. And I mean, it's even in the name restoration, right? To to restore things kind of implies the taking things back to what they used to be, but I don't know. Yeah, you, you have to respond to the world as it exists in front of you. Um, and you need to maintain a level of idealism, you know, in order to be in this field, I think, you know, that because you're faced with the, the kind of enormity of, of the world being, uh, fairly messed up, you know, there's a lot of tragedy in in environmental fields. You know, it's, you feel like you're just fingers in the dam and trying to stem the bleeding. Um, and so in a way, kind of letting go of that vision of we're just going to completely return and and we're going to have these little time capsules of, of true native ecosystems, uh, that are how things were. And then everything else is changing around it. it. Letting go of that, uh, maybe can start to allow for some hope and, and for a broader vision of the future. But there's room for, for lots of different methods and lots of different results. And that's going to vary a lot locally as well. Um, I'm speaking again, kind of from a context of, of having worked, you know, in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but uh, things may be different somewhere else. Um, so, and the, the impacts that you're dealing with may be different. Um, so there, there's a lot to consider there, but certainly, you know, some of my work is in coastal estuaries, uh, in forested wetlands and, um, it's important work. It's important to restore these areas that have been degraded by agriculture. The land has subsided through lack of sediment inputs and diking. 
um, and we can restore them and we can, we can rebuild these wetland forests and the estuary. Um, but we also have the knowledge that many of these systems that we're right, quote unquote, restoring are going to be gone in a hundred years. That's just, that's a certainty. And so is, is there still value in doing that? Um, and maybe the answer is yes, because maybe really it's not restoration. It's just a form of stewardship of the land. You know, we're, we're taking care of it. We're improving the condition for generations of plants and animals. Um, and we can't know what will happen after that. We, we know that this thing will be gone, but there will be something else after it. And, and we're maintaining some biodiversity um, just for the time being. Well, it seems like if we, if we restore certain areas, even though we know we're going to lose them, you know, we might lose them in like different ways than we would otherwise lose them. I don't know. This is totally naive, but I'm like, well, you know, we know that desertification and we know that, you know, well, at least climate is going to change and overall be much hotter. We know that's true, right? But maybe the way things die off can be different, you know, if, if we, yeah, if we make things a little better ahead of time. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And, and I think that there, there's functional reasons that that would be true. Just, just basic um, population ecology reasons that that would be true. You know, if you're, if you're working somewhere and you, you know, like for example, okay, we're trying to, you know, uh, we're working on a dry site and we're trying to restore, um, let's say Ponderosa pine woodlands in the American Southwest. Uh, but we know maybe this is a marginal site for Ponderosa pines and, and eventually they're not going to persist in this area. Well, one of the, one of the potential mechanisms of climate change is that things move both north and they move uphill. They move upslope, especially in mountainous areas as, as the temperature warms and those upslope areas become, uh, become relatively warmer. Um, but they, they, they maybe are, are closer to the temperature that was previously in the valleys. Um, there's oversimplification. There's many other factors, but, um, if there aren't trees there, um, then there's no seed source for that, for that population to move up, upslope. Right. So, you know, the, and, and we deal with a similar thing in these estuarine systems in, in, in coastal areas where, uh, we know sea level rise is going to flood flood these places out it's like well at, at least we have the spruce swamps we have spruce and if the spruce exists the spruce can move into the upper areas or if they're there maybe the you know you have more trees they capture more sediment it slows that process and allows things to adapt and sometimes the slowing of those stark processes can um, be really beneficial is this the like when i was in arizona i went to this place i think it was called mountain lemon and it was like a sky island it was basically the Pacific Northwest, but in Arizona, I think it even had Douglas firs. I, I feel like wrong when I say that, but there was some. No, I mean it, it probably does. Yeah, and yeah, that's cool. That's like a. Do you know this concept? Have you heard of green nihilism or like eco nihilism or climate nihilism or whatever? Like nihilism as applies to the climate, but in a positive way. Have you heard this? Yeah, totally. And I mean, I think it's, it's kind of self-explanatory, right? Like it's just, it, it's too much. And it's like, well, there's just, there's a fatalism about climate change. Yeah. And this idea, and, and I think when people use it positively, like green nihilism is like, you know, people sometimes talk about like giving up hope in order to be able to like, you know, stopping, like giving up, stopping climate change and moving towards adapting to climate change. I actually think that that style shouldn't, mm -hmm. It, to me, that doesn't feel like nihilism at all. It actually feels very hopeful because most of the time when I think about climate change, I kind of think of sure. everyone forced to live underground and grow foods and hydroponics and, you know, the earth the surface of the earth is unrecognizable. And, and so when people talk about like, well, maybe everything will just be a little bit different. I'm like, oh, that sounds so optimistic. And I get really excited about that optimism. But I, I like, I don't know, the thing that you're talking about now seems like this like in-between space where it's, you know, it's like, knowing you're going to lose, but seeing what you can gain by trying to win in the process. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to be realistic about that things are going to change, but, but we also know that change is a, a, just a part of ecology. It's a part of the natural world. And I, I, you, these, it's funny to say that out loud, right? Because that, that's the sort of phrasing that gets used by climate denialist denial deniers and, and such. Um, mm -hmm to say, oh, you know, climate change is natural and these things happen. And of course it's not. And the rate of change is extreme. And 
uh, it's bad, but but we also can we 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 can have an active hand in that adaptation. Um, I think is what you're kind of getting at. We can yeah we know that change is coming, uh, and there's people and and who are working on trying to slow that rate of change, and that's and that's what uh, you know we're trying to do if we're talking about reducing emissions and things like that. But when we also talk about um, a lot of what we talk about in ecology is resiliency, which of course is a really important concept uh, in in human communities as well, right? It's how do you build community resiliency in the face of disasters and in the face of um, climate change or, or other threats. Uh, and, and that's a lot of what we talk about in restoration as well now. But we kind of, when we talk about moving on from that historical model, one of the things that, one of the buzzwords now is, and I, I say that not negatively because I think it's important is resiliency. Um, and a lot of things can make an ecosystem resilient. Uh, one of those things is biodiversity. You know, if we don't know how, how the world is going to change, the, the more um, organisms occupy a space, the more they occupy a piece of ground, the more likely it will be that some some kind of balance or equilibrium is going to be found later, or that one of those organisms is going to survive and thrive in in some form that may not be the current form. It's not going to be the the community composition that it is today, but uh, you probably also won't have a monoculture. It won't disappear completely. You won't get desertification or or whatever the the, the specific threat is uh, in the area that you're living and working in. So is this like similar to how? Uh, farmers, you know, one of the reasons that people push back against Monsanto and, and these other sort of attempts to sort of monoculture our, our food sources is because if you have only one strain of rice or whatever, then, then whatever blight comes through will take out all of your rice versus the more different strains you have, the the better your chances of actually getting a good yield. That's exactly right. And that's talking about even just genetic diversity. Right. And, and it's, it's really just, it's threat mitigation. Um, the more, if we have a diversity of species, the same way we think about diversity of genes, you know, and we think about climate change as a, as a disease to an ecosystem. If you think about it as a singular living body, um, the more, uh, diversity you have among plant species, the more likely it is that, uh, the ecosystem is going to be able to respond, you know, so you don't, if you have a single overstory uh, tree species, um, which in some, in some cases you have in some marginal ecosystems, that's all that's there and that's all that's available. Um, but if that, if that single overstory species uh, becomes impacted in a way specific to climate change to, to the point where maybe it's wiped out, which is a real possibility in some parts of the arid West where you have uh, native bark beetles often increasing in in, in damage to, to forest stands, uh, largely due to climate change, you know, you have, you have warmer winters and so they're able to be active for longer. You have less kills from freezes. So, um, you, you have whole stands disappearing. Um, and if you have a single tree species in those stands, um, then it's not a forest anymore. It'll be, it'll be something else. Um, but if you have a, a multi-layered canopy with, with many different, um, tree species, then, you know, perhaps one of those other species is going to be resilient. It's going to resist that, uh, that threat and it can occupy the space. So, um, it, it's really just, it's, it's just kind of building in more options for the ecosystem to adapt. I like this a lot. Like, I don't know. I, I really, I mean, I'm enjoying learning this stuff because it, it, because it dovetails so well into like what I believe about the world and things like that. But like, you know, I mean, one of the main things that I'm interested in is that I believe diversity is a, a better form of strength than like unity rather than trying to make everyone agree to something or making everyone the same and in, in, along almost any axis instead getting people to work together despite differences, you know, and like actual multiculturalism versus like the melting pot, for example, or, you know, it even like in political movements having diverse opinions, diverse strategies, diverse methods, and then just working together to try not to step on each other's toes and to try to figure out how all of our different strengths can tie together. And so I, I, I'm excited to hear that that's like the main way that people are thinking about uh, creating resilient ecosystems is 
you know, because I think people have this concept of like the way to stop climate change is, you know, essentially this eco-fascist idea, or I heard someone call it, I think climate Leviathan or something like that. You know, this idea of like a top down, here's what we all must do approach. And yet I think that that replicates well, the problems that got us here in the first place, but also, you know, that would be like saying like, oh, well, this is the tree that this particular tree will resist climate change the best. So we're just going to like clear cut everything and plant that tree, you know? Yeah, I, I, I think, oh, yeah, I just, um, I think there's a lot of social lessons probably to be drawn from ecology. And I think it's tempting for people and it's been done a lot. Um, and, and it interplays, right? We, we, ecology is the study of, of relationships, um, between organisms functionally. And if you're talking about restoration ecology, it's just how do you restore those relationships? And if you have a monoculture, there's no relationships to be had, or there's fewer, you know, your, your web becomes just, just some kind of simple grid with a few connections instead of this kind of unknowable, um, complexity of interactions. Uh, and it's that, sort of unknowable complexity that I think is, is like most beautiful in ecology to me. Um, and it was, is maybe why I, I was drawn to being a, a practitioner, um, instead of a researcher. Um, maybe I'm also just not smart enough for that. That's part of it. Maybe I'm not good enough at the math, but you know, it's, <laughs> you, you know that you have to let go, you get to act and you get to see how the ecosystem responds and you're never really going to know what all of those response mechanisms actually were. Uh, I, I mean, I think that's, that's really nice. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, an ecosystem is not top down. It's not anything down. It's just the interaction of, of many organisms. And as a top down actor, in a sense, you know, choosing our inputs into the ecosystem, I think that's something that, that does need to be decided as a society in, in a way, but also that that society can be in, you know, there's, there's layers to that, right? It's like, how, what is our ethic? How do we treat natural systems you know i think there needs to be like a, a moral framework uh, but then a lot of this stuff it, it really is only it only functions on a local scale um, i mean I, I think it's in my field it's so important to to just continue to work in one place it, as much as possible it, it i mean it just i'm still learning plant species you know in in sites that i've worked on for years and i was like i didn't even know this thing existed and and um so, so some level of local control, even if we're operating in the space where, where government and funding and all of these things are, are major factors, you need local experts. Um, and some of that is, is just the, like, we, I mean, we don't, we don't orient our society, um, towards local expertise, um, because people have to have jobs and they need to move on from those jobs. And sometimes a career opportunity is going to be in a different part of the country, um, and, and on and on, but, um, without, without that local knowledge, uh, there's just, you, you miss too many things and, and you miss many things regardless. But, um, and that's why when people, you know, it, people do lip service to indigenous knowledge and, and cultural practices and stuff. And sometimes it's not genuine, but, but the most genuinely important thing about it is that local knowledge. Right. And we, you think about like in, in my field, I think about just like the massive tragedy of, of losing the, you know, thousands of years of knowledge. Um, and, and, and then what of it that we have, because these, these, you know, cultures and indigenous people are still with us. And they're like, I see like yeah. tribal governments and just, just, uh, individual native people trying to insert themselves into these spaces and natural area management and, and being kind of like, Oh, well, yeah, you can have this over here. You can do this over in this other space. And it's like, you know, what little we have left that we didn't, we didn't, you know, wreck of this, this built up knowledge over thousands of years. We're kind of just like shunting to the side and yeah, kind of marginalizing it in its own little box when really that's the model we need to be replicating you know, and building as a culture, right? We need to build those generations of knowledge. Well, I like, I get really excited about um, organizational structures that are, are bottom up, right? Like where the main most important thing is that local expertise is the fact that the people who live in an area are more likely to have the skills they need to uh, deal with problems in that certain area, but they might need resources 
And in some ways you might want to centralize the acquisition of these resources or whatever, you know, um, or talk with each other and like network and coordinate with each other, you know, because there's some, there are decisions that need to be sort of made at a, a larger and wider level. But I think that just like we can essentially invert the kind of hierarchies within our society. But I suppose that is tangential to reforestation. And I, I've been spending the whole time trying to come up with a way to phrase the pun, like see the forest for the trees. But um, I'm just going to leave that there and you all can come up with your own version of that. What, um, to, 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 but to try and be like more specific and more, and more practical about it, how does reforestation affect a, like, a local area? Besides, I guess like, okay, it's two separate questions. One is the large scale question. How does reforestation impact climate change? But besides, again, like protecting biodiversity, like you were just saying, and giving like more... Uh, tickets in the lottery of survival or something but also like is it true okay i'll just go like is it true that if we plant a whole bunch of trees then we'll be able to slow down or mitigate the effects of you know carbon in the atmosphere because of trees capturing carbon that would be a a first question yeah so so the the simple answer to that first question is yes of course we know trees capture carbon um and through photosynthetic processes trees and all plants not just trees which is an important point that people miss um capture carbon um and that carbon is stored unless it's burned or you know otherwise disturbed sometimes through decomposition processes um you can have methane and and carbon released back into the atmosphere but um but yes, uh, on a global scale, reforestation generally, if you're starting at a zero state, you know, you take a bare piece of ground and plant trees, um, reforestation uh, is an effective way to mitigate or counter the effects of climate change. Um, now, uh, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but I will say that one of the um, scariest sets of words in my field is, um, global tree planting initiative. Um, <laughs> and, Oh, interesting. Okay. Cause that's where my brain goes. Uh, yeah, that's less a function. Well, I think it, it's a function of going back to talking about needing local solutions or at least needing local expertise, even if you have a global initiative. Um, and a lot of it is that frankly, there's organizations, um, out there that are, that are just big grifts you know, that, that are saying you buy this product, we're going to plant a tree. You don't know really where that tree is, or they're going to maybe, uh, sometimes that money goes towards, um, replanting timber plantations in Canada or something, you know? And it's like, well, the carbon accounting of something like that is pretty, uh, pretty sketchy because they are probably going to replant it anyways because it's functionally a farm, right? They're just replanting the trees that they're going to harvest again in 50 years. Um, and uh, and in other cases, you have organizations kind of swooping into areas and planting non-native species, you know, in areas that were already vegetated. And maybe that vegetation has similar, car you know, garbage, carbon storage capacity as that monoculture of trees that you went and planted. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get too far down that road, but, but I, the answer is that trees, yes, of course, store carbon. Um, so does other plant life. Um, and the most effective way to use forests to, at least in the Pacific Northwest, where, where I have some knowledge to um, combat climate change, it, it can be tree planting, but it, it's protecting existing forests from logging and destruction. Um, because it's really the old trees, at least in this system that I, I'm familiar with that have the, the most carbon storage capacity, the big old, you know, hundred mm -hmm. plus year old trees. I, I mean, that's, I guess it's not surprising to me that the organizations are the problem with tree planting initiatives, you know, um, <laughs> because it, I, I'm so used to not even thinking organizationally at this point that I'm like, Oh no, you just plant trees everywhere. Right. But I'm like, Oh yeah. But if there was like either, of course, yeah, of course these companies where they're like, oh, we want to get the most carbon capture per dollar or whatever. And so, yeah, I guess they'll go plant the wrong trees in some area and mess up that ecosystem and mess up the ways of life of all the people who live around there and things. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it it seems to me that, yeah, defending the trees that we have uh, as well as, I guess, replanting and reforesting, but from local, like, in ways that are applicable to the local context as best understood by people who um, are indigenous to that context, or at least are experts in that local context. Is that, 
Yeah, I think that's right. And the other thing I would add to that is um, carbon accounting is extremely difficult. And and any scientist who studies this, I'm not a scientist who studies carbon accounting, but from everything that I've seen and read and everyone who I know and have talked to, there's so much hedging um, as to be the point, well, we know that this probably has impacts, but maybe those impacts are two centuries down the line. One example is I just saw a presentation about, you know, was looking at, well, what's the carbon storage capacity in, in coastal wetland systems? Again, this is just, these are places I work. Um, so um, this really smart researcher whose name I'm forgetting, um, but that's probably okay, was was looking at um, carbon capture and then also carbon and methane emissions from these wetland systems. And one of the conclusions was that these wetland systems are uh, long-term if left alone, um, you know, net carbon and methane positive, right? Like they, they will capture more than they take in, but a lot of them are actually emit more methane and carbon through decompositional processes. You know, you think about walking around in a swamp, um, you stick your boot in and you get that smell of sulfur and methane and those decompositional processes, which are super important and do a lot for the ecosystem. Uh, emit more methane, which is a much stronger uh, greenhouse gas than carbon, than they do capture carbon. And eventually it becomes carbon uh, positive, I guess would be the term, right? That it's it's capturing more than it's emitting because uh, methane doesn't last as long as the atmosphere. You're continuing to capture carbon, you know, over time. That could be 400 years in the future, you know. So it, that doesn't make it not worth doing. But if the idea is we're going to solve climate change by planting trees, you know, or by manipulating ecosystems in order to prioritize carbon capture without considering all of these other things, I, I think it's probably too difficult. It's a nice bonus, but I, my feeling tends to be that there's, there's so much that restored ecosystems, including forests, reforestation does for uh, societies and for people beyond that, things that you can see and feel and affect local and feel the effects of locally that we should be valuing those things as well. Can you give me examples of some of those things? Like, Yeah. Well, I, initially, um, you know, I know you wanted to talk about microclimates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and That is my um, next question, so this is great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, we can jump right into it, sure. I guess. It, it, there's, like, uh, there's been some really interesting research lately on um, the, the local climate effects of forests. Uh, I, I was reading a paper earlier about, um, you know, of course you have, you have, um, effects on, on ground temperature just through direct shading, right? Just, just the creation of shade, um, can make a massive difference. Uh, in the Northwest, we just experienced, um, what has been described as a thousand year heat event. Um, in Portland, where I live, we had temperatures, uh, pushing 120 degrees, which is, like not fathomable, yeah. you know, I, I still can't fathom it, even though it just happened and I'm seeing the effects and yeah. seeing dying plants, you know, it's, it's, it's apocalyptic feeling, but because we have a good network of temperature sensors and weather stations, you can see that in neighborhoods that had tree cover, you could easily be 10 degrees cooler than neighborhoods without that. And that's going to be largely because of just the, the direct shading effects. Um, and then there's also cooling effects from respiration in trees. You know, water is is one of the best temperature moderators that exists, right? And so just the process of trees uh, respirating and and uh, giving off um, water vapor through that process uh, cools the air. And so... Oh, it's like evaporative cooling that's happening on the tree. Essentially, yeah. Cool. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's 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 thermodynamics. And, and that respiration slows, you know, when you have super hot temperatures a lot of a lot of species will undergo you know like like sort of heat dormancy summer dormancy but but it still happens and depends on the plants but and and then of course just the direct shading i mean obviously shade is cooler than than being in the direct sunlight uh and and open concrete and asphalt is the opposite it reflects a lot of heat so in an urban context um and there's been uh actually some really incredible research done by again trying to recall his name um a researcher at, at same person. Portland. Yeah, I, I will uh, maybe I, I'll come up with it later. Um, but a researcher at Portland State University who's done uh, thermal mapping of the city of Portland and now has moved on to other cities 
basically showing where there's these urban heat islands, right? And the, these heat islands are, uh, I mean, it's incredibly stark. And of course, there's all these these social implications because the heat islands are in poor neighborhoods and the and the rich neighborhoods have big old trees and but but again yeah that the cooling effects just directly from being near trees is is well known and it's it's becoming more and more well documented yeah i live um i mean part of the reason i got excited about like reading about microclimate stuff is that you know i live on a land project where slightly more than half of it is uh open field and then the other half is up in the woods and i'm the only one who built her house up in the woods and there's you know when it comes to running my solar panels and things there's a lot of disadvantages here and the humidity is a little bit worse up there which is a a problem in the mid-atlantic although i feel terrible complaining about any climate um, problem that i'm facing in one of the most temperate and so far least affected areas but it's a 15 degree difference between you know and i'm not that far into the woods or something but my house stays fine in hot Southern summer without AC from as long as I have maintained some airflow and have vents and things. And and if I walk down into the field, I'm like, like I'll walk down in the morning and I'll have a hoodie on and I'll get to the field and and everyone else who lives there will be like, you know, not wearing a shirt or whatever. Um, It's, it's stark in a way that I never, you know, it's like, I know it on some level, like, oh, if you walk on the middle of the road and it's black and, you know, it's asphalt and it's hot or whatever, right? But I never quite, you know, felt it daily, that that difference. And so that's why I got excited about it, just because I was like, oh, well, this works here. It clearly is applicable on a global scale and I should enforce a global tree planting initiative. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can make pretty good money at it. Yeah. Um, How long does it take to create a microclimate? Is this something that like, listeners who if they have like if they have enough power to influence the you know flora of their neighborhood and things like that could be pursuing as a way to at least keep their environment like a substantial amount cooler or oh yeah absolutely i mean it's of course going to depend on the growth rate of trees and and that's going to depend regionally i mean uh, i live in a a pretty productive climate a, a mild climate so far in in (laughs) our history and lifetimes um but uh there's tree species here that you know and and they're established can grow five ten feet a year so that's very much within our lifetimes um those shade effects you know you start to feel that well as soon as it's putting out shade and the more shade that's put out the the stronger those effects will be so so absolutely um if if this is a, a primary you know, if you're talking about an urban context and you're just in your neighborhood, you you do want to consider, right, like, what is the growth rate of the species that I'm planting? You know, maybe that's an important consideration um, for a reforestation project or, or picking something near your house. You know, if you look in the, uh, it, in the West, um, you know, all the old homesteads, they would plant poplars in, in a row, either as a windbreak or as shade or both next to the houses because poplars and, and things in in populous uh in in that group of plants grow incredibly fast they're also very brittle something to consider if you're planting near your house you know limbs can fall off and and such but yeah i mean it's something that you can be involved in and do and and you know uh, especially on sites that i work on i i have sites where i i planted the trees or planted trees with a group of people and, and eight years later they're they're 25 feet tall um and and so you're really seeing a forest develop um that's cool but but of course that's going to depend on on where you live. Okay, here's a an oddly specific question: How do you plant a tree? Like when I was a kid and it was like Arbor Day or something, they were like, "Go home and plant this pine tree," and they gave us like this like pine tree sapling, and I like dug a hole and I put it in the hole, and then it died. Yeah, you know. And so I've convinced myself ever since that um, I can't. I have like a you know an anti green thumb or whatever, and if any time I plant anything, it's going to die because I like tried to plant a pine tree in elementary school but in, what, what's involved in in just the literal act of reforestation or even just tree planting yeah well in in reforestation you know what you're talking about mostly is scale right and, and so the most important thing is is covering acreage and making sure that that we can cover as much ground as possible and, and in the field of ecological restoration locally we're 
you know, we're actually borrowing a lot of practices from agriculture and from commercial forestry, where these things are, there's lots of money behind them and techniques have been established, right? Um, so a, a tree planting crew in, in the Pacific Northwest, even in steep terrain, and, and the less steep it is, the easier, um, you know, a, a, each crew member can plant 1,000 to 1,200 trees per day would be about standard. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, if you're reforesting it, it, an area, let's say it's canopy species only, and you're, you might be planting 300 stems per acre on a restoration project. So each, each crew member might reforest four acres a day on a, on a good day. You know, if, if we're doing a restoration project, we're also planting understory species and other things as well, then maybe that drops to an acre. Uh, you know, scale is the most critical thing. Um, so it's, it's professionals, people who know what they're doing, right? Um, and, and it's not that anyone can't learn. There, there's some simple, simple things that, that all plants want when they're being planted. Um, you know, not uh, letting the roots hang naturally is maybe one of the most important things that people kind of get wrong when they're planting a tree. It's like, oh my God, this, these roots are too big. I'm just going to kind of stuff them in the hole. And then they, they turn upwards and we'd call that J rooting. Right. Um, okay. So the, the root basically forms a J uh, and the tree can recover from that. But w when you think about a young sapling developing, one of its biggest limitations in, in a lot of climates, not all is going to be water availability. And the deeper those roots are, so the deeper the hole is, the deeper the roots are, and the more natural they are in their arrangement, the later it's going to be able to access water into the dry season. Um, every inch of depth might gain it a week uh, as, the, as things dry out. Trees get planted too high, you know, roots get exposed. Um, that's, that's another component. So are you just like, you're going out there with like a, like a, what, a one person gas auger or something and drilling a bunch of holes and then going back through and putting saplings that were grown in a nursery somewhere into it or? or... Yeah, most of what, most of what we would use um, in reforestation projects locally, um, but it's, it's almost all going to be hand planting. Um, again, you're talking about pretty steep terrain. Um, in some cases, we may use augers mounted on the back of a tractor, but anywhere that's flat in, in Oregon and Washington in the winter is usually pretty wet uh, when we're, we're planting things. So it can be hard to get equipment around, but usually it's snow. We plant smaller trees, um, things that people can carry. We use what we would call bare root stock primarily um, that's grown in a commercial nursery. And uh, instead of coming in a container, you know, a plastic pot that creates a lot of trash and also is just heavy um, and hard to carry around. We, we, the plants, uh, when they're dormant, get pulled out of the ground with their roots exposed to the air, and then they get put in a basically a planting bag and sealed up. And then you pull them out when it's time to plant them. And the roots are just e exposed to the air, and, and you plant them in the ground directly. And when you have that, each, each tree planter can carry maybe 200 trees at a time in planting bags just on their shoulders because the weight is significantly lighter when you don't have the soil attached so almost all hand planting um so that 1200 trees a day will be they're digging every one of those holes um and just sliding the tree in you just dig as small a hole as possible you open it up a little bit and it, it's a cool process to watch yeah. yeah what do you what are you digging it with then if it's not like a gas auger or something like I'm, i guess i'm yeah. thinking of building foundations yeah we have <laughs> we have planting shovels I mean, they're just a long shovel with a, a long narrow spade usually um in some cases um uh there's a tool called a hodad in uh <laughs> in steep areas and actually it, i uh, i'm going to get the history wrong I, I think the tool is named after a group of basically hippies that moved out to oregon in the 60s to be on tree planting crews and they developed this tool you know or they named the group after the tool but i i think it was the other way around and anyways I, one or the other but um the, the hodads were a cool group of kids back in the day. Um, and uh, uh, so on steep terrain, you might have basically looks like kind of a long pickaxe with a, a blade at the end. Um, but usually, yeah, it's just a, it's a, like a 16 inch long, narrow shovel. Okay. And then what if someone's trying to plant trees a little bit more DIY, whether getting them from a nursery or even like, is it, is it feasible for people to try and, plant from seed with trees like i i really don't know much about gardening i feel bad, almost bad this podcast is like not focused on food but i would like to <laughs> yeah i mean absolutely and again this is where connecting with people locally and understanding what things need um to grow locally is so important right 
Um, we don't use a lot of seeding for um, trees and shrubs just because we have a well-developed network of nurseries that, that grow these, these seedlings. And uh, it makes maintenance a little bit easier to be able to know exactly where the, the seedlings are. So you're not mowing something that's, you know, an inch tall, uh, but, but trees grow from seed, you know, and, and definitely, you know, one of the things that I've done is uh, on a project where we've, we've had to remove alders. Um, they were going to seed at the time and, and uh, we just ground that up into mulch and, and the seeds that were developing on the tree were part of that mulch. And then that just got spread around on a site. And then we had like a thick stand of alders just pop up and they were mulched basically from the the bodies of their parents. Um, oh, wow. In some cases, you can also use natural processes to get those seeds to establish on their own. Like another example would be um, the cottonwoods locally, which a lot of my restoration is of kind of cottonwood galleries along rivers. They time their seed drop to happen um, after the river is just dropped. You know, the, the spring floods have receded and you have all these this exposed mud and exposed ground. So the seeds can take advantage of that exposed ground. And so... Of course, because we have hydroelectric dams on a lot of the rivers here, you don't have that flooding anymore and you have weedy grasses and things. Um, but if you clear that ground at the right time of year underneath the trees, you can get a response of seedlings dropping all, all around and among those trees. You know, so the, the remaining mature trees will kind of sprout a forest. If you just, you know when those seeds drop, you know when the natural time is for them to, to emerge, you can use that to your advantage. How do, you know, it's like, okay, so you work on, on restoration and, and reforestation and things like that. But then, of course, as you pointed out, we're also losing a lot all the time, right? And it's kind of two questions in one. One is, cause sometimes I worry about, you know, my work as an environmentalist or even as like with encouraging preparedness, like how much am I just like, in some ways, like allowing the system to continue? Because I, if I'm mitigating as an activist, if I'm mitigating the worst effects of a system, then in some ways I'm allowing it to continue. Right. And like, you know, charity is particularly famous for this of like, basically just like, well, industrialization, industrialized capitalism wouldn't work without charity because it doesn't, you know, like people need that or there wouldn't be a workforce anymore. And yet at the same time, this act of redistributing resources is very good. Right. And so in the act of physical resources, we'll talk about, you know, mutual aid instead of charity. And I wonder about like something like reforestation, where do we cross the, the threshold? Is it just a matter of scale of crossing the threshold from like um, being a release valve for the worst parts of industrialization versus like gaining ground ecologically? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how to assess that like on a global scale. But what I can know is that, you know, circling back to talking about resiliency, um, if, if you're doing something to the best of your knowledge to improve your local natural environment, you are, you're counteracting some of those, those negative effects. Whether it's enough, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's lots that we need to do aside from climate change, I think, to like start gaining ground in, instead of just halting it. And, and the history of, of the environmental field or of conservation of natural resource management is starting with that, well, we just need to halt things, right? We need to preserve land. And, and that's super important and still needs to happen. Uh, and restoration was kind of people thinking, well, we need a, ne a next step, right? We, we've preserved a lot of land, but like a lot of it's degraded. But of course, we're still we're still building new subdivisions. You know, we're still converting small farms to industrial agriculture. I mean, that these processes are still happening. And so the answer is, I don't know. I mean, right. it's, and it's hard to know what action is going to have like the best total positive difference. I mean, maybe organizing to stop a new subdivision is going to be a more effective use of your time or, or just more impactful than reforesting an area that that's already natural, but is just degraded. Uh, I, I really don't know. And it, it, part of that's going to depend on what you're valuing. You know, what are, what are you most concerned about? Is it, is it habitat? Is it total you know, is it climate change? Is it is it total loss of green areas? Is it is it shade? As we were talking about, you know, local local climate mitigation. These are all things to consider, I guess. And and uh, yeah, I don't know when when we reach the tipping point in the other direction, but I know that for me, if if it's directionally, if it feels directionally good, then maybe I've just chosen not to think about it beyond that, because otherwise it's too hopeless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, no, I, I totally understand that. I mean, it's like, it's like a thing that I wrestle with when I'm doing activism, but it doesn't make me stop doing activism. You know, I'm like, okay, like we're still gonna, we still need to do these things, even if, even if it isn't yet at a critical mass at which it like 
is winning or whatever on this, this larger scale. Um, and I guess I've always been a, a big fan of, of uh, the like sort of why not both approach with yeah. the little gif yeah. of the girl asking why not both. Because like I've, I've always been of the like stop slash demolish the institutions of destructive force or whatever, you know, like, like stop oppression while also building liberation as like, you know, both things are, are, are so necessary. And, and I guess I, I can accidentally sometimes get caught up in that false dichotomy of like building up the things we want versus tearing down the things that are destroying the world. I guess uh, as, as coming towards the end of this, but I, I wanted to ask, cause you were talking about how the work you do, you know, kind of relies on idealism and, and hope. And I think that that's something that's in short supply right now. And despite my last name and despite the fact that I run a podcast about the end of the world, I, I believe very strongly in hope, at least as a strategic thing, you know, it's like, you can't, you can't win unless you fight to win and you can't fight to win unless you envision the fact that you could win or at least, you know, have a better time along the way to losing or whatever. And, and so I I guess I want to ask you like, what gives you hope? What, because most of us don't know that much intimately about the ecological impacts of climate change. It's just scary. Right. And I know that what you're talking about, about biodiversity, giving us a better shot, that, that feels really hopeful, but I'm wondering if you have other, other ideas. Well, I, I would say um, one of the most beautiful things I think about, about being in the, the field that I am um, building forests a lot of the time is that uh, you are hopefully creating something that um, that's going to outlast you. There's sort of a, an awe that I try to uh, maintain. It's not always easy, but um, some of these organisms um, that w- that we interact with that might be a couple of years old when we plant it, it could have a lifespan of, of in, in my region, 500 years. You talk about a Coast Douglas fir, and we can't know what the world is going to be like. And it's not really about making your impact because no one's going to know, oh, I, I designed, I built this cathedral. You know, it's not like that, but it's like you're you're humbled by the experience of, of working with something that that's so big and, and so vast uh, in, in size and in, in time. And I think that that's a really, I think it's a really beautiful thing. And I, it's a cliche to say, Oh, go plant a tree as like an environmental action, but participating in restoration locally, which there are ways to do hopefully. And, and, People should try to, if, if they have the ability, it, it, it can give you that sense of awe. And then if you're able to go back to that place that you helped on, you know, 10 years and in 20 years, it, it's, it's really humbling and it's really amazing. So it, it, it gives me hope that, that things outlast us, you know, that, that the world kind of goes on and that also that we can, we can be a, a positive part of the natural world. It's not just, oh, humans are, are bad and we're, we're screwing everything up. It's, we, we can be intentional in how we interact with nature. Uh, and I think introducing that intentionality into how we impact the natural world is just, is just so important and, and feels good when you do it. Yeah. I wonder if one of the single most important things we can do is fight this idea of like humanity is a cancer or whatever, right? Like, you know, humanity itself, like humans are not inherently flawed in this way. Like we're not inherently going to destroy everything. You know, it's, there's certain, uh, certain organizational systems, both economic and also larger structural systems that do this thing, you know, and we end up participating in it, but, but there's other ways that we can live, have lived, do live, will live, you know? Yeah. And, and a lot of times we think about nature as something that we, we affect incidentally, mm-hmm. you know, we, we did, we do a thing that we want to do for some reason, and then we accidentally have an effect on the natural world. And I, I would like people to maybe think a, a, about it as we can choose how we affect the natural world and we can be a, a positive force and we can be, you know, I get very hippie, but we, we could be one with it. You know, we, we're, we're not separate as you, as you said. Um, and, uh, it just, it's, it's, I think just a much healthier way to, to view ourselves and, and nature. Um, just, just, uh, go do something positive, you know, be, be specific in, in how you want 
to impact the natural world um, in the same way that you would be intentional about how you want to impact your community and, and your relationships with your family and your friends. Yeah, I like that. I like that comparison. And it feels very, it's almost, it's like not even a metaphor, it's just literal, you know, there's like the human and the non-human communities that we're part of, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's not just having less impact, it's having good impact. Yeah. Instead of the, you know, it always, it always struck me as like trying to just reduce your impact upon the world was always like, like, what's the point of that? It's just so that you can feel better about yourself, you know, like actually doing something positive feels way better and way less in some ways like obsessive, right? Because if you're just trying to, you're trying to make sure you have no impact on the natural world, you're essentially just trying to negate yourself. Yeah. Fuck. Um, was there, is there a question I should have asked you or something that you, you really want to bring up that you think I or the listener should hear? I wanted to ask you all this stuff about riparian zones and flooding, but that was entirely selfishly because I live on a <laughs> quote unquote hundred year floodplain that thanks to climate change is a four or five times a year floodplain. <laughs> but I'll, I'll ask you that another time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think we covered some interesting ground. I, I, I would say connecting with people locally um, and, and building that local knowledge is, is the main thing that I can leave people with because that's, I can't tell you what to do if, if you live somewhere else or even if you live near, near me. You know the problems that you face better than anyone and, and people in your community probably do as well. So that's, uh, yeah, I, I can't think of anything else. <laughs> Okay. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on. And do you have any, you know, I I don't know whether you're trying to have strangers ask you questions on Twitter, or if you'd like to shout out anything about how people can either follow your work or learn more about what you do, or if there's any other organizations or anything like that, that you're excited about that you'd like to uh, shout out to people. Yeah, um, I, I would say, um, if people want to follow me on Twitter, um, it's plant underscore warlock. Um, and, uh, as much as I talk about, um, you know, environmental issues and projects that I'm working on that may be interesting to folks, um, looking at reforestation and dam removals and things like that, I have to admit, um, I also just talk a lot about how terrible our, our mayor is and things like that. (laughs) Um, but I, I would also say for people, um, local to Portland, if they're interested in tree planting, um, we have a great organization called Friends of Trees um, that does tree planting projects in neighborhoods and also in natural areas. And it's a great way to kind of get your foot in the door and and see if you enjoy doing this kind of work. And um, and, and if anyone just has uh, questions or, you know, wants wants advice on on things in in the natural world, I may at least be able to, to point them in the right direction. So feel free to contact me. Okay. Thanks so much. And does that organization in Portland, do you all like take donations? Can I try and direct people to give you all money? Yeah, they do. I'm not, I'm not affiliated. Um, I just know it's an easy way for people to get involved. Um, but they, they certainly take donations, uh, and they are always looking for volunteers. Um, that's not, uh, I know that's slowed down and and been different during, um, COVID times, but, um, I think they're taking volunteers again, uh, and people can certainly donate to them. Cool. Okay. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell people about it. This is the kind of the only way that people find out about this podcast is through word of mouth. And I'm incredibly grateful for everyone who like, you know, shares and retweets and posts their story on Instagram and and blah, 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 like feeds the algorithm and, and tells their friends about it. And of course, anyone who tells people about it in person. Well, if you don't like the episode, then don't tell people about it. Unless actually, if you, if you want to, um, if you don't like the episode, you should tell people about how much you don't like it. Cause that will still also drive engagement. Um, that's my favorite thing when people do, and you can also support the show by supporting me on Patreon. Eventually it'll be supporting a whole organization on Patreon, which is basically what you're doing. If you support me on Patreon, because other people are very involved in this, uh, podcast at the moment, and we're going to expand out to other podcasts and shows and things like that. Oh, speaking of which, I now have a YouTube show. Um, the channel is called Live Like the World is Dying. You'll be shocked to know that. And you can find it on YouTube. I only have one episode up as of this recording, but who knows how many I have up by the time it's released. In particular, I'd like to thank some of my Patreon backers. I'd like to thank Sean and Hugh and Dana, Chelsea, Eleanor, Mike, Starro, Cat J, The Compound, Shane, Christopher, Sam, Natalie, Willow, Kirk, Hoss the Dog, and Nora. I 
really can't thank you all enough. I mean, I don't know. I guess if I did it too much, no one would listen anymore if I just said y'all's names over and over again. Uh, weird pleading tone. So I won't do that. But I will say that I hope everyone is handling all this as best as they can. And I will talk to you all soon. Thank you.